I'd ask if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we read our passage for this morning. Once again, Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, uh, verses 1 to 23. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officials how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the presence, sorry, in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. So this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes and has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we see things that are glorious. We see things that are ominous. Father, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help us, Lord, to hear these things and to receive these things as, as not just doctrine, but, Lord, as the representation of Christ himself. Lord, I pray that you would help us just not just to see, receive these things in our minds as truths to apprehend, but as a person to receive and as a person to enjoy fellowship with. Father, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, as we, as we hear these things, that you would help us, Lord, to examine our hearts and, Lord, to see where we stand before you and, Lord, to repent of anything that is unconfessed before you. so that we may eat and drink the celebration of your death, Lord Jesus, until you come, in anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, 
as our family was driving to Vancouver for medical appointments, we listened to the Bible as I streamed it from my phone um, onto the car's uh, audio system. And, and I mean, maybe this is something your family does regularly on road trips. And I'm, I'm, I was kicking myself. I didn't think of doing this earlier. And our kids love to, to listen to, um, to, to story tapes, particularly uh, your story hour. And, and, and although your story hour is a Christian program, it, it often and often tells um, Christian stories. They like to, of course, to watch, watch movies as well. But, but I thought, how much better would it be for our children to, to listen to stories from the Bible as we drove? So we listened to the story of Exodus from Exodus 1 to 15. I thought this also gave me an opportunity. I was a little bit behind on my Bible reading. And I could I could listen to it um, at the same time, and so so I enjoyed it. Jane enjoyed it, and the, the and Judy, who was driving with us, enjoyed it, and our kids enjoyed it. They hardly made a peep while we we're listening to Exodus, just straight from the Bible. And this passage, Exodus one to fifteen, really was an appropriate passage for me, for us to read, given the passage I'm preaching from today, Luke twenty two. Uh, verses 1 to 23, where the Lord Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. So let me give you a bit of background on the Passover. You, you, maybe you're familiar with these things, but the, 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 the Passover is, is one of the most important days in the Jewish calendar. In fact, second to Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, it is the most important day, was the most important day for Jews. It's a, the, the, the Passover was the first day of the feast or the festival of unleavened bread. The, the week-long celebration of the Lord's deliverance of the Jews from captivity in Egypt. And you can read about its inauguration of Passover in Exodus 12, where, where Jewish families were, were commanded to kill a lamb at twilight and then to daub the blood of that lamb on the, the doorposts of their homes and, and on the lintel of the door. And, and then they were to eat the lamb along with unleavened bread and, and bitter herbs. And they were told to eat in haste, being, being ready to leave with their belt fastened and their sandals on their feet and their staff in their hand. Because that night the Lord was going to pass through the land of Egypt and kill all of the firstborn of Egypt, man and beast, executing God's judgment. This was, and as, as we listen to, and I'm sure you're aware, this is the 10th and final plague after God has successfully sent increasingly worse plagues upon Egypt as a warning for what's coming. And that blood that was on the door of those houses of the Jews would be a sign so that the destroyer would pass over their homes and not kill the firstborn. And it happened just as the Lord said it would. The firstborn throughout the land of Egypt were all killed, but in the homes of the Jews, the firstborn were spared. And then the Jews were finally able to walk out of Egypt, free from the cruel slavery that they had been subjected to. The Passover became an annual feast for the Jews. And so every year at the time of Passover, the same, same day, the, the, the Jews would remove all of the leaven from their homes. The leaven is the yeast that, that would make bread rise. They would remove all the leaven from their homes in remembrance of the fact that they had to leave Egypt quickly. They wouldn't have time to wait for bread to rise. And then at the Passover meal, the head of each family would, would pronounce a blessing uh, over, over the, the cup of, over a cup of wine. And then the cup would be passed around. The cup would be, would be shared amongst the family that had gathered. And then they would, would eat, uh, then they would eat bitter herbs that were dipped in a sauce. And then the, the second cup would, would be prepared. And then a, the son would ask, what does this mean? 
And his father would reply, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt and from the house of slavery. And then the father would recount the story of the exodus from Egypt. And then together the family would sing the first part of the Hallel from, from Psalm 113. And then they would drink a second cup of wine together. The, the head of the home would, would take unleavened bread and, and bless it and break it and would pass it around to his family. After this, they would eat the rest of the meal, followed by two more cups of wine, and they would sing the, the second part of the Hallel from, then from the Psalms. This is probably Psalm 115 to 118. So this meal, this Passover meal, was an act of remembrance and thanksgiving for God's deliverance from Egypt and, and hope for future deliverance for his people. It, it was a meal that, that would have been celebrated annually. It's a meal that, that Jesus would have celebrated annually with his family. Yes, this was commanded by God. And Jesus was obedient to the whole law, including the ceremonial law of God. But this Passover meal was about to be replaced. Jesus was about to replace the Passover meal with, with a meal that he was going to eat with his new family, with his disciples. That last supper was the first Lord's Supper. The, the, the Holy Communion that Jesus now spiritually partakes of with all of his disciples around the world. So whenever Christians gather to eat the bread and drink the cup, they, they are participating spiritually with the Lord Jesus Christ. For the disciples, that first Lord's Supper pointed to what Jesus was going to do on the very next day. And for us, it points back to what Jesus did on that day. For all of us, it points ahead also to the consummation of the kingdom of God, that the Passover, again, has been replaced by Good Friday and by Resurrection Sunday. But to this day, Jews around the world still celebrate the Passover around the same time as, as our celebration of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And, and this year, the, the two... Um, the, the two celebrations actually line up. Both Good Friday and the Passover this year are on April the 15th. And as I, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's, it's, it's interesting as I, as I planned out this, this sermon series, it looks as, as though I will be speaking about the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually on Resurrection Sunday, so on the 17th of April. You can mark that in your calendar. The Passover points ultimately to Good Friday and then beyond it, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 The death of Jesus Christ was the only way that God could forgive sinners while still upholding his righteousness. God condemned his Son in our place. And these events that we're going to be looking at here this morning and then on through the rest of Luke were under the direct superintendence of the sovereign God. As Peter said in his sermon on Pentecost in Acts 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The cruc crucifixion was God's plan from eternity past. 
As the enemies of the Jews plotted to take his life while Jesus prepared to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, God remained in control. In the passage before us this morning, we see wicked men plotting, Satan possessing, the disciples preparing, but ultimately God is accomplishing his plan. The events that are about to unfold not, are not merely up to the plans of wicked agents, human or diabolical. The Lord uses the wickedness of the wicked to achieve his supremely wise and good purposes. Behind what is taking place are the kingdom plans of the omniscient and omnipotent God. So we have four sections in this passage this morning in verses 1 to 6. The Jews prepare to kill Jesus and Judas prepares to betray him. In verses 7 to 13, the disciples prepare the Passover. Verses 14 to 20, Jesus prepares the disciples for his crucifixion. And verses 21 to 23, Jesus is is prepared for his betrayal, but his disciples are not. So first of all then, in verses 1 to 6, the Jews prepare to kill Jesus, and Judas prepares to betray him. Luke tells us that the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, drew near. And as I explained a moment ago, the Passover is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we're getting close now. This very night, Jesus is going to be betrayed by Judas into the hands of the Jewish authorities, and they will betray him into the hands of the Romans. Remember how Luke tells, told us in Luke, in Luke 20, that the scribes and the chief priests wanted to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people. They tried to entrap him with their questions, but remember Jesus turned the tables on them, and he answered their questions with further questions that they were not able to answer. And now Luke tells us that the chief priests and the scribes wanted to kill Jesus, but again, they were afraid of the people. Now, the chief priests were the, the powerful members of the priestly families, and, and from among this men would, would come the man who would be high priest. The scribes were the legal experts, so-called, interpreting the law for the people. And so these men had a great deal of authority in the worship of Israel. But not as much authority as they would have liked, because the people were standing in their way. And so if these men did anything to Jesus, they'd likely have a riot on their hands. But as we're going to see by the very next day, the fickle crowds will not stand in their way. They'll actually call for the death of Jesus themselves. We'll get to this in a few weeks. But here, the Jewish leaders, those who should have been the first to welcome Jesus Christ, revealed their seething hatred of him. But this isn't new news, right? Jesus told his disciples back in in Luke 9.22 when he first spoke directly about his crucifixion. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And and you can see throughout Luke is there's a a ramping up of the, the animosity that these men hold towards Jesus. And it's reaching its pinnacle here. These men were motivated by jealousy, by false religion, by hypocrisy and hatred of the truth. They were haters of God and they were lovers of sin. These wicked men were about to get their way 
from a most unlikely source, from Judas, one of the twelve apostles. Now, we all know the name Judas. My parents don't name their, their children, their sons, Judas anymore because of this Judas. But imagine hearing this for the first time. Imagine if for the first time you, you, had, had, you had heard the name of Judas in conjunction with the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. If for the first time you heard that, that one of Jesus' own disciples would betray him. You'd be astonished. You'd be shocked. In a disbelief. Now, of course, for us it comes as no surprise because Luke has warned us about this all the way back in Luke 16, sorry, 616, where he says specifically that Judas the son of James, and Judas, there was Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot was another, so there's two Judases, but Judas the son of Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. But this Judas became a traitor. So Lucas warned us long ago. But Judas didn't act alone. Judas had an accomplice, a diabolical accomplice. His accomplice was Satan himself. Now, all of us can say we've been tempted by a devil. But being possessed by a devil is orders of magnitude worse. And I've talked about this recently. I, in my life, I, I think I've encountered at least one person who re I really believe was actually possessed. It was a very scary experience. But being possessed by a devil is, is something that, that was, was more common in that, in that time, in that era. As the, the, as the influences of Satan and his, as his wickedness were, were ramping up around the time of, of the, the coming of Christ and in the lead up to his crucifixion. Remember in Luke chapter 8, where in the country of the Gerasenes, Jesus encountered two men who were possessed by thousands of devils. But what Judas experienced was even worse than that. Because Judas was possessed by Satan himself. Now remember that, that Jesus had exercised those, those demons from the two men in the Gerasenes by simply commanding them to, to depart. And that Judas, Jesus had easily overcome Satan in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4. But here Jesus doesn't intervene. He lets it happen. So whereas, in the tempta whereas temptation from himself is clearly at a new level, Jesus has encountered and overcome Satan's temptation, and now, again, being possessed by Satan himself, Judas is now going to accomplish Satan's will. Judas was possessed by Satan, but he was also accomplishing his own will. Satan did not force Judas to do anything that Judas didn't already want to do. Jesus had come, Judas had come to hate Jesus. And we get a hint of, of why this is at the anointing of Jesus in John 12, 4-6, which we read, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, 
in parentheses, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, before Judas was possessed by Satan, he was possessed by greed. He was possessed by, by, by greed. He was consumed by greed. Now, now we might not think of, of greed as a cardinal sin. Okay, we don't think of greed as being one of the big ones. But here we're, we're told how, how Judas' greed became theft. And then his theft became betrayal and an accomplice to murder. Friends, any sin, any sin, if left confessed, will drive you away from God and will drive you to things that you never thought possible. Sin is always aiming at its worst possible manifestation. That's why Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount that those who hate are guilty of murder in the heart. That the murder is of the same species as hatred. And that hatred, if left unchecked, will lead to actual murder. Likewise, that those who look with lustful intent are committing adultery in their heart. That, that lust in the heart is aiming towards the actual working out of lust. Many times I've, I've talked to people who were weeping over sins that they committed. Weeping over sins that they never thought that they would actually do. That they got swept up in. And it got hold of them and it consumed them and it destroyed them. Is there any sin that you are not confessing to God? Is there any sin that is, is keeping you from clear fellowship with God? Is there anything standing in your way that you have not brought before God? That, that you are not bringing to Him in repentance and faith? Asking for His forgiveness. Those sins will destroy you. Confess your sin to God or it will drive you from Him. John 3.20 Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So unconfessed sin leads to hatred and not just hatred of a, of a set of doctrines. Hatred of Jesus Christ Himself. And in this we have a a severe warning in Judas. So Judas now became a co-conspirator with the chief priests and the officers. The officers here are the officers of the temple. They hated Jesus too. And so when Judas came to him, Luke tells us that they were glad, that they rejoiced. It seems almost wrong to use a word like, like rejoicing to describe these wicked men, but, but they now had their opportunity. Judas had played right into their hands. Now they could get around the crowd to arrest Jesus. And also the fact that one of Jesus' own disciples was the one coming to betray him, this would have been the icing on the cake. right? And, and they're thinking it would have vindicated their position. See, even his own disciple thinks that, that he's wicked or, or off his rocker. 
that there's a fleshly satisfaction that, that comes when someone who, is, who has been close to your enemy chooses your side. And we're told that the, these men paid Judas for his betrayal. Matthew 26, 15 says specifically that he asked for money and that they gave him 30 pieces of silver. This would have been about, 40, about uh, four months' wages for a day laborer, the, the price of the compensation for the death of a slave, according to the Old Testament civil law. About $5,000 a day. About, sorry, about $5,000 in our day. And so Judas agreed to the money and began searching for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to the religious, religious leaders away from the crowds. And that location was, was the very place where Jesus had been lodging with the disciples overnight on the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane that we're going to be talking about very shortly or next week is going to be, was right there at the base of the mountain. You can visit the site to this day. There, there are trees in that garden dating back not as, as far as the, the, to the time of Christ, but some of the trees in that garden are 900 years old. And even this locale was chosen specifically by Jesus for his arrest. So you can see that while, while Judas was in Satan's hands and was playing into the hands of the religious leaders, this whole thing was in God's hands. The Jews were preparing to kill Jesus, and Judas was, was preparing to betray him, but the whole scenario had been prepared in advance by the Lord. Now, verses 7 to 13, the disciples prepare the Passover. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread has arrived. It was Thursday. The Passover lamb would be sacrificed in the temple court that evening. Four times in these seven verses, we're reminded here that the, the, this is the evening before his crucifixion, that this was the time of the Passover. The death of the lamb reminded Jews of their deliverance from slavery to Egypt, but Jesus was about to reveal how it pointed to a far, far greater deliverance. He'd be crucified the very next day for the sins of his people. And because of the, the detailed requirements for the meal this this meal couldn't just be thrown together people had to get ready they had to prepare so jesus sent peter and john ahead to prepare saying go and prepare the passover for us that we may eat it they were told to secure to secure the room they also would have have gotten the lamb from the temple and they would have have gotten the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread and the wine for the meal only luke mentions peter and john by name here these men are the future leaders of the disciples, and they're learning how to serve. All leaders need to know how to serve. But they asked Jesus, where? Where are they supposed to do this? this? It would have been hard to find a place to eat the Passover meal since Jerusalem was crowded with pilgrims who would come for this very same purpose. And so as Jesus was about to gather with his family of disciples, family groups would be gathering all over the city to eat the Passover meal. What would take place as Jesus gathered in that room with his disciples had far more importance and far deeper meaning. Jesus explains that they would find, that the disciples would find a man carrying a water jar and that they were to follow him to the house to the house that he entered and to say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? 
Jesus explains that the, the master of the house would then show them to a large upper room that had been furnished for this purpose. That, that this room would have had a, a low table with, with cushions gathered around it. And the disciples were to prepare in that room. And so Peter and Luke, sorry, Peter and John went to prepare the Passover precisely as Jesus had told them to. Now think back to Judas. They are contrasted with Judas. Their obedience to his rebellion. Their devotion to his hatred. And Peter and John found things exactly as Jesus had told them. Now while it's possible that, that Jesus had, had physically gone and naturally gone to prepare things in advance, that he had scouted out the upper room and, and, then, and then met with the, the, the master of the house, but I don't think that's the case here. I believe that this was actually supernatural. As I also believe that finding the donkey colt for the triumphal entry was also supernatural. I believe that Jesus was showing his first disciples and us that he was, was in control of these events. Even if he were to have made prior arrangements with the master of the house, I don't see how he could, could have known that the, the man carrying the, the, the water jug would have been there just as, as Peter and John entered the city. I, I think this was, this was an example of, of a prophecy where, where ex Jesus was prophesying exactly what was going to take place, that this was a supernatural event. Jesus is shown here to be carefully fulfilling the religious requirements of the Passover. But he's about to fulfill the Passover with something that far surpasses it. He listened to Daryl Bach. Another era of salvation is about to be established, again inaugurated with death. As the disciples prepare a Passover lamb, another innocent life is being readied for death. But first must come one last meal and time of instruction with the disciples. Jesus is betrayed as faithful in worship, as he also will be faithful in death. This is no criminal or fugitive, but a righteous, pious martyr. Well, now in verses 14 to 20, Jesus prepares the disciples for his crucifixion. Look at how Luke is using time markers to lead us forward to the climax of this event. First, the day drew near. Then the day came. Now the hour has come. And Jesus reclined at table with his apostles. Again, they were leaning on these cushions around a low table. This was a common way to eat meals in the ancient Near East. Many in that region still eat this way. And think about meals that have, have figured prominently throughout Luke's Gospel account. And, and this is by far the most important meal of them all. In fact, this is the most important meal on earth of all time until the end of time. And Jesus is gathered with those closest to him one last time before his departure. And so Jesus said to the disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It, it literally says, with desire, I have desired. There's, there's a repetition here for emphasis. Jesus earnestly desired to eat this meal with his disciples. Now, he has desired to do this in part because he earnestly desired to fulfill the requirements of the Passover and fulfillment of the ceremonial law. But with what he's about to do, he is fulfilling its purpose. But not only that, Jesus desired to eat this Passover with them. 
with them personally. He longed for one last time of table fellowship with his disciples before he left. So now Jesus was with his disciples. Now I don't, I don't mean that he was just physically present, but that he was spiritually present with his disciples. That he was on their side, that he was for them. This is reflected in John 13, 1. Now before the peace of the, fa- of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus loved his disciples to the end. Jesus was with his disciples and they were with him. That is all except one. All except one. And now Jesus begins to explain the full meaning of of the meal that he's instituting. Twice in this section, he links it with the coming fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Jesus is not going to eat the Passover again, verse 16, or drink wine again, verse 18, until the consummation of the kingdom of God. The Passover has has typological significance. It, It was a shadow, a picture that pointed to and commemorated the deliverance from Egypt, but it pointed to a far greater deliverance, which will be seen fully and finally at the kingdom of God. At this Passover meal, given to remember how God had judged Egypt by killing all the firstborn, but providing a way of of escape for the Jews, for the destroyer to pass over them through the blood of the Passover lamb. Now another era of salvation is dawning, which which looks forward to deliverance not just from captivity to, to Egypt, but from captivity to sin. Even further ahead, it points to deliverance from death. This is the promise of another meal. Another time when all of Christ's disciples, when all of Christ's disciples will gather at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So again, Jesus and his disciples were celebrating one last time before his death. But this is also a promise of victory. For they'll eat They'll eat again with Jesus in the kingdom of God. And brothers and sisters, so will we. When we come together at the Lord's table in a few moments, we are showing our participation in the body of Christ as one body in Christ, as we anticipate the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so with Jesus' return and the consummation of the kingdom, then together we will celebrate the fulfillment, not just of the Passover, but the fulfillment of the Lord's Supper. Jesus took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. This sharing of the cup is a token of fellowship. Drinking from one cup one day, we'll have the guts to do it here. Maybe after COVID. It it, it signifies the the unity of the disciples that they have together in Christ uh, apart again from one person. This cup that that Luke talks about here that's given before the bread is actually unique to Luke. The other gospels don't refer to this, this second cup. Well, the second cup is actually the first cup. 
Luke is the only gospel writer to mention the two cups. As I mentioned in my introduction, there's actually four cups during the Passover meal. So this reference is probably here to the first cup. But again, Jesus says he will not drink, a, drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it with them in the kingdom of God. And so part of, of what we anticipate, again, is the fellowship at the table in the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now he is present spiritually. When we partake of this bread and this cup, we are participating spiritually with Christ. The, second, the 1689 London Baptist Confession is, is really helpful here. Worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed not yet carnally or physically and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ, then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So as we partake of this, this physical bread, which, which is just bread, and the fruit of the vine, which is, which is just grape juice. Again, one day I hope that we'll be doing this with, with real wine. I think that's the intention. But as we're participating in these, these physical elements, there's a spiritual reality that is taking place that we are spiritually partaking with Christ. Something very special that takes place when the church gathers to receive the Lord's Supper together. So then Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So again, as, as even the kids understand that the, the, the bread represents Christ's body, the, the bread is a symbol that points to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. When we do this, we're to do this in remembrance of him. So we're to remember his body, whipped and beaten, with spikes driven through his wrists and his ankles, hanging there to slowly asphyxiate, as if every breath he had to, to put weight on those, those nerves, searing, blinding pain. But far more than that, we're to remember the sufferings of Christ as he bore the wrath of Almighty God. As his Father poured out his holy and just wrath on his holy and just Son in our place. This is what we are to remember. His body was given for you. The suffering that he experienced was the suffering that you and I deserve for all eternity. Verse 20. Likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this, is, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is probably the third cup in the Passover meal after the main course. The, the Lord had made a covenant with Israel. But now Jesus is fulfilling the meaning of that covenant, the covenant of grace. 
the full and final fulfillment of the covenant of redemption, the agreement between God the Father and God the Son to save a people for himself. The fulfillment of this covenant was through Christ's blood. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 24. Jesus is the suffering servant who, as the covenant representative, was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5 that he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressions, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12. Again, this is something very special, very unique. This is a, a celebration spiritually of our union with Christ. But this is not just, just solo, you and God. This is a communion also of the saints, a community that we enjoy together as, as the local church. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Again, the cup of blessing that we bless, is, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? But verse 17 continues, because there was one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So again, this is a picture of, of our unity with, with Christ and our unity together with Christ. Now we hold to the centrality of the Word of God. But what we do in the Lord's Supper is the climax of what we do when we gather together as the local church. We, we do not celebrate these these emblems as though they could somehow be divorced from the word. It's, it's part of, of the whole package, it, it, but it reaches its crescendo in the Lord's Supper. These elements in the Lord's Supper, in them we, we don't get a, a better or a different Christ than we do in the word, but as, as Scottish reformer Robert Bruce said, but we may get the same Christ better. The same Christ better with a firmer grasp of his grace through seeing and touching and feeling and tasting as well as hearing. And all of this was enjoyed, all these blessings celebrated by Christ and his disciples around the table. Again, all except for one. Verses 21 to 23. Jesus is, is prepared for his betrayal, but his disciples aren't. There is one present at that Passover meal for whom these blessings had no meaning whatsoever. He was separate, separate from those at the table who loved Jesus and separate from Jesus. He hated Jesus. Now Lucas told us his name. But Jesus does not reveal his, the name at this point to his disciples. Verse 21, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Again, we already know because Luke has told us, but the disciples don't know. John 13, 18 to 19 said as well, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place then when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus is showing that this is the fulfillment 
of God's sovereign plan. It's the fulfillment of Scripture. It's a direct quote from Psalm 41.9 that was read for us earlier. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Eating the bread and drinking the cup does not save you. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Eating the bread and drinking the cup can't save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. But this, these elements have been given to you as a means of grace whereby you can, can grow in the knowledge and be remembrance in remembrance of the knowledge of all that Christ has accomplished for you. Jesus partook of, of this meal. G- Judas ate the Lord's Supper, but Judas did not belong to Jesus. Judas hated Jesus. Now we make every effort to fence the table before we partake together to warn you not to, to eat the bread and, and drink the cup in, in, in hard-hearted rebellion against God. So you do not eat and drink judgment on yourself as, as the church is warned in 1 Corinthians 11. But may that not be you. May you not be one who eats and drinks judgment on yourself by eating and drinking the bread and the cup of the Lord without belonging to the Lord. I can think of people over the years, people who I baptized, who took the Lord's Supper time after time after time but ended up rejecting Jesus Christ, who walked away from him. There's a far greater condemnation for those who have heard and rejected, even for those who have never heard. Now, there are some here, we talked to the children, who, have, who do not take the, this bread and this cup. And this is, this is important to think about. This is, we, we do not, there, there are churches that celebrate paedal communion, that they give children the Lord's Supper. I, I, th- I think this is clearly wrong. And very dangerous practice. But children, I implore you, most of you, are old enough to understand the gospel. Most of you are of an age where you can repent and turn to Christ in faith. And I long to eat and drink with you as well. Now I understand that there there are here who some here who are, are, are not quite ready to to take the Lord's Supper. Again, we, we believe that best practice is to be baptized before you take the Lord's Supper. But the question is here, are you longing? Are you longing to do these things? Are you working towards doing these things out of love and obedience to Christ? Verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Again, we see that this has been determined. 
This is God's plan. That, that Judas being possessed by Satan was not a, was not a surprise to God. This was God's plan in eternity past. Now, Satan was still responsible. Judas was still responsible. Because God is not the author of sin. They, they acted out of their own wickedness. But if you think about the, the condemnation that would come on one who has, has eaten and, and drinking, eaten and drank the, the cup and the, and the bread without belonging to Christ, imagine the condemnation that was upon Judas, that is upon Judas, who ate this meal in the presence of Christ when he had it in his heart to betray Christ to hand him over to his enemies. All of the teaching that, that Jesus had, had done was, Judas was there for it. Judas was right there. He, he heard it all. He saw the miracles. And in fact, it's very likely that Judas, even as the other disciples cast out demons and, and did other signs, that there, it's very likely that Judas did those signs as well. But he had no part in Jesus. Jesus is showing here that he's, he's fully cognizant and in control of these events. That though, he, again, he's not the author of sin. The fact that God overrules the evil that bad people do as he brings his, his good and perfect purposes to pass does not make those deeds any less evil. These, these people remain responsible. But it would have been better for Judas if he had never been born. God's plan was being accomplished just as he had predestined it to take place. But the betrayer is personally responsible for his actions and subject to God's wrath. And as Jesus taught these things, said these things, the disciples began to question one another as to which of them was going to do it. At this point, they had no idea the only ones at that table who knew who the betrayer was were Jesus and Judas. The disciples didn't know. And in fact, in Matthew 26, 22, they, they, each of them asked, Is it I, Lord? Am I the one? Jesus had known all along, even when he, he chose Judas, but these men were actually asking a good question. They're asking a good question. Because in their tender hearts and their, their tender consciences, they, they knew that but for God's grace, the, the threat of betrayal hung over them. There, there's certainly an ominous note to Jesus' words. And I imagine these men looking at each other with, with blank looks on their faces. But Jesus has reassured them that these events that are about to unfold are not merely up to the plans of wicked agents. That God is working out His purposes for His glory and for the salvation of His people. But again, this is a good question to ask. Is it I, Lord? This, you need to ask yourself, where do I fit into these plans? Judas was part of Jesus' inner circle, but grew to hate Him and eventually betrayed Him. And some who claim to follow Jesus will ultimately reject him. Again, I've seen it. 
They may look for a time like true disciples, but they aren't. True faith stands firm. And so ask yourself, ask yourself, am I truly trusting in Christ alone? Ask yourself and and ask the Lord, more importantly, if you truly belong to Him. Ask yourself, is is there some besetting sin in my life? that is keeping me from following Christ truly. Ask the Lord through His Spirit to reveal that to you. And to confess it to Him and to, to, where appropriate, to confess that sin to others. Again, you might not be possessed by greed, but what besetting sin will be your downfall if you do not repent? Romans 8.13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Or Ephesians 5.5, 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In Galatians 5, we, we, there's a whole list of the, the works of the flesh that is contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. Those who, whose lives are characterized by the works of the flesh are still in the flesh. They do not yet belong to Christ. But those whose lives are characterized by the fruit of the Spirit are showing the fruit of the Spirit at work in their lives. As they respond in ways that left to themselves in their flesh, you would never respond. So ask yourself, ask the Lord, like these disciples, is it I? Christ's death is not the end of the story. And yours isn't either. Judas stood before the Son of Man in this life. He will stand before him in death. And so will you. So will you. Your only hope My only hope is to stand before Christ clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That His death was as a substitute for your sin and mine. That His life was a substitute for yours and mine. This is our only hope. If you're hoping in anything else, you will stand before Christ and you will fall before Christ. The forgiveness that was offered to the disciples and is offered to us was offered to Judas as well at that table. Judas could have repented. By God's grace. But he didn't. He didn't. He went out and betrayed Jesus. And then he hung himself. But Judas wasn't the only betrayer at that table. There was another. The apostle we just mentioned several times, the apostle Peter. Three times he betrayed Jesus in his denial of Jesus. And Jesus had warned him directly about this. 
But again and again and again, he betrayed Jesus by denying him, even blaspheming, even calling down curses upon himself. But Peter repented. And Peter was forgiven and restored. Really, the only difference between Judas and Peter, or between Judas and any Christian, is God's grace. It's God's grace. Will you confess your sin, repent of your sin, and trust in Christ alone for your salvation? This is your only hope. This is my only hope. May all of us follow Peter, not in his denial of Jesus, but in his repentance and his faith. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we marvel at your great grace. For we we confess that although we have not sinned in exactly the same way that Judas did. That we have betrayed you again and again when we've lived for self and sin. But Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your great grace as we see here in the gospel. We praise you Lord, that you superintended all of these horrific events so that you would die as the sin bearer, be raised again on the third day in victory over sin and death and hell. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you have accomplished that victory for us. I pray that all who are hearing these words Lord, we receive them not just as the words of a man, but Lord, as a command from God himself to repent and follow Christ. Do this in our hearts, I pray, that you may be exalted in us, that we may grow in the likeness of Christ for your glory, that we would shine the light of the gospel in this dark world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.